please turn to John chapter 19. Let's, uh, let's pray as we, before we begin. We fall down in awe of you, Lord. We are undone because we are people of unclean lips and we live amongst the people of unclean lips. And our eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Lord Isaiah, as he, as he was confronted with the pre-incarnate Christ, he fell down undone. Lord, the only reason we are not consumed in your presence is because we have been redeemed. Lord, that because the, the reason that we are not destroyed because of our own profanity, our own unholiness, is because you have touched our lips and have cleansed them. That you have atoned for our sins. I pray that as we reflect upon your kingdom, as we reflect upon your sovereign hand in salvation, and as we compare the fleeting kingdoms of this world and of the imaginations of man to the everlasting kingdom of our God and King, Lord, that we would be humbled and yet overjoyed because we are not left groveling and fearful. We are brought with grace and love into the into the beloved, to your very arms. We ask that you would give power in proclamation of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would take these unworthy lips and through Jesus make them worthy. I pray that you would take these unworthy hearts And Lord, as we consecrate them to you, that they would be fertile ground where your word can do its work until it, where it can accomplish your desire. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 19. Let's read together. Starting at verse 1. And we'll be reading through to verse 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twist, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed, arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to him, said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, 
And according to that law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greatest sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. I've entitled this message... <coughs> I've entitled it, When Kingdoms Collide. John is not a, an author who is given to write extensively about the kingdom of God. If you want to read about the kingdom and, and all of the teaching of Jesus about the kingdom, read the Gospel of Matthew, or even Mark or Luke, but especially Matthew, the kingship of Jesus Christ, and the nature of his kingdom is clearly laid out. But in this passage... We do have Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus, which we saw last week, is a kingdom that is not of this world, a kingdom that cannot be seen, a kingdom that does not advance itself with weapons of carnal warfare, but a kingdom that is composed of all of those who are in the truth, and because they are in the truth, receive and hear the voice of Jesus. Those who receive the voice of Jesus because they are in the truth. So that is the kingdom that has been described by Jesus. And Pilate recognizes this when Jesus explains this to him. He says, so you are a king then. Now, there is, in this passage, there are other kingdoms that are laid out for us. There is a kingdom that is... Uh, it's kind of a, a fanciful kingdom. It is one that is based upon truth, that has a history of prophecies that speak about a messianic king who will reign over Israel, who will reunite Israel and Judea and reign over them as king. But Jesus, coming as a suffering servant, is not received as that king. And the people that he came, his, his own people, he came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. The light shone in the darkness, and the darkness 
did not comprehend it. So there is the, a kingdom that is built up in the minds of men, and their understanding is that this kingdom will simply be a, a validation of everything that they have done religiously, and of all of the old covenant laws that they have endeavored so assiduously to keep. This kingdom, they think, will culminate in someone coming and vindicating all that they're doing and destroying all of their enemies. Jesus is not fitting that bill. He is not the conquering king that they expected. And then there is, of course, the temporal kingdom of Rome, one of the greatest kingdoms that has ever existed. And the kingdom of Rome was one that simply absorbed nations around about through sheer military force. They brought great advantages and, and great advancement to every nation that they conquered. They brought the, the latest technology, for example, the aqueducts to bring water and so forth. Uh, they were, at, at, at least in, at their peak, an equitable, as, as far as kingdoms go, they were, they were a republic and uh, they, there were many good principles in their government, but they were a, an earthly kingdom. They were a kingdom that was advanced by the pride of their kings, their Caesar, the Caesars. Um, and of course, we all know that the, the Roman Empire did fall. It did not stand. So in this short passage here, we have an intersection and a collision between these three kingdoms. Now you might think that the kingdom that cannot be seen kingdom that is from above, a kingdom that posed no temporal threat, for example, to, the, to Caesar. Caesar, Pilate said on Caesar's behalf, I find no fault in this man. I don't see him as a threat at all. If anything, he's, he's a, he's a small-time prophet that you people are mistakenly afraid of. So, I've asked in the past, in one of the messages, I've asked the question, where do you stand in relation to Jesus? Do you stand with Judas, who is separated and outside and standing with those who arrested Jesus because he betrayed Jesus? Are you standing with him in friendship with the world? Are you standing with Peter, Standing outside, well, the other disciple goes in with Jesus where he is facing trial before Annas and Caiaphas. Are you like Peter, standing and warming yourselves with the soldiers, the very, uh, with the officials, the very ones who um, came and arrested Jesus? Are you standing in denial of Jesus? Or are you as one of those officials? standing in defiance Jesus because of religious fervor and striking Jesus on the mouth when he, uh, when he merely, when, when he merely um, sheds actual light on what is going on without insulting the high priest, this man takes it as an insult and he strikes him. Well, where do you stand in relation to Jesus? The same question is going to be asked in another way. In whose kingdom do you stand?
which of these kingdoms can count you as a citizen? Are you a citizen of Caesar's kingdom? Are you a citizen of some religious kingdom that is based on traditions of men? That is based on things that have been added to the gospel so that it is no longer the gospel? Or are you a citizen of the kingdom that is identified by truth? A citizen of the kingdom whose authority trumps and suppresses all other authority? Are you a citizen of the, the vassal kingdoms of this earth who get their very authority from God? Or are you a citizen of the one who gives them the authority to do those things? We're just going to go through... Uh, Sequentially, we'll go through this passage. I've given you an outline. And sometimes it, it's uh, necessary to... Um, I'm going to say I don't think it is necessary for me to justify the whole theme. Because if you look from the very beginning to the end of this passage, you have the concept of kingship. Right from the crown of thorns, in the very first verse... Two, we have no king but Caesar in verse 15. And in between, you have this interaction about authority, and you have the threat of Caesar's, uh, of the Jews saying, uh, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar's. So kingship, kingdoms, is what this is all about. And this is a cosmic collision of these three kingdoms. Let's look first at the crown of thorns. In verse 1, Jesus, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the elders twisted together a crown of thorns, or pardon me, the elders, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Just a little background on the flogging. There were two types of or three types of flogging, and they varied in severity. Likely, the kind of flogging that Jesus received at this point was not the flogging within an inch of his life. It was a, a disciplinary, symbolic flogging to show that Pilate was at least listening to the complaints of the Jews that had come against Jesus, showing that he was um, taking some form of justice against him. Well, there's not only the flogging, which is perhaps even a token punishment at this point, but there is this crown of thorns and this purple robe. Now, John speaks from a very limited, uh, per, uh, speaks with very limited detail in this passage. John's account of the crucifixion of Jesus is much more compressed than the other Gospels. So what we're missing here in this account is the interaction with Herod. Did you notice that as we read through? Where's Herod? So what happens here in between verse 1 and verse 2 is that Pilate sends him to Herod. And it is the, the Roman soldiers who are serving Herod, who is the, uh, 
governor of Galilee and happens to be in Jerusalem at that time. It is Herod's soldiers that actually um, put the crown of thorns upon his head and mock him and so forth and come up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They strike him with their hands. You get other details from the book of Luke. Not only did they say, Hail, King of Jews, but they, they uh, mockingly bowed to him. They struck him not only with their hands, but with a rod, perhaps uh, mocking the, the scepter of a king, but they were actually striking the king with the scepter. They even spit upon him. Uh, they treated him horribly. Now, what Pilate is doing here, he is making a mockery of the charge that has been brought against Jesus. He wants the Jews to see how ridiculous it is that they are accusing this man of being a king and a king that is somehow a threat to the Roman Empire. Again, in the Synoptic Gospels, you can see that their charges were barely, were saying him and his followers are going around making trouble and you better deal with it because this is a threat to Caesar. He's speaking against Caesar, which was a false accusation. So the soldiers, they put on this mock coronation. They make fun of the king. Pilate went out about... They came to him and said, Hail, king of the Jews. They struck him with their hands. In their verse 4, Pilate went out to them again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know I find no guilt in, in him. Jesus came out. So Pilate goes out and he says, I'm going to bring him out again so that you can see I find no guilt in him. He brings him out. And here he is, really a pathetic looking figure. Someone dressed in, in some purple cloak, probably that of a Roman soldier, with this makeshift plate plaited crown of thorns on his head, uh, blood trickling down his face from the 12-inch thorns on that crown. Having been beaten, so he is obviously will have the effects of that, um, that painful encounter, they'll have that effect on his face, and he brings him out and presents him in this very mocking way and says to them, Behold the man. This is the big threat you're so worried about. This is your king. Look at him. Just look at him. I see in Pilate's, or Pilate's and Herod's actions here and this mockery of Jesus, I see not a lot of difference between that and the way that people flippantly throw the name of Jesus Christ around in conversation. How many times have you heard someone exclaim Jesus Christ in the most vengeful, hateful, disrespectful, blasphemous way in order to curse and your flesh just cringes that they're daring to use the name of your God that way. This to me is, is no different than placing a crown of thorns on his head and mocking him, mocking his power, mocking his saving mission. 
Think about it. The name Jesus Christ. Jesus means God is salvation. Christ means anointed one. And to use his name in place of a four-letter word. Well, this crown of thorns, it is a mocking crown. It's the only authority that the world really wants to give Jesus. Pilate doesn't see him as a threat, as a political threat. And so he makes a mockery out of him. Obviously, he has not fully understood the nature of Christ's kingdom. Well, that's the crown of thorns. That's the first indication that this is all about a kingdom. Well, I should say that in the previous chapter, we saw much about the kingdom. We saw Jesus defining the nature of his kingdom. But now this is, it's kind of coming out onto the public stage. And this question is, is really, Jesus really the king? It is now not only a question between Pilate and Jesus in the inner chambers. It becomes a dilemma for the Jews who are accusing him and are bringing these charges against him. And they respond with a cry for blood. When the chief priests, in verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. They answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Now, the Jews have not yet brought the very nature of, they have not yet brought this charge, this last sentence, he made himself the Son of God. They have not yet brought this before Pilate. They tried to address it in terms that Pilate would understand that he's a political threat, which is a complete lie. But here's the real reason that they are bringing it. He has said he is the Son of God. He has said, before Abraham was, I am. He has stood in the garden as thousand, perhaps a thousand people gathered there and converged to arrest him, and Judas betrayed him. And he says, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says to them, I am. And they all fall back and fall to the ground. This is the charge. They are actually accusing him of what he has clearly proclaimed that he is the Son of God. Anyway, their cry is for blood. Their cry is that he be crucified, not just that he be executed, because they had laws for blasphemy. And by, under those laws, they could have picked up stone and stoned him, or they could have burned him. But they wanted him to be hung, impaled on a stake or a tree or a cross, and they knew very well the passage, passages from their own scriptures from the book of Isaiah, or pardon me, the book of Deuteronomy, that the, the one who hangs upon a tree is cursed. This is what they wanted for Jesus. Not just any death. They wanted him to be seen as cursed. There's something very wicked in this cry. They have seen all of the miracles that Jesus did. They have seen Lazarus having been dead 
in the tomb for three days to the point where his sister was worried that if they opened that door, there would be a stench coming out. And Jesus calls to him, while he is dead, Lazarus come forth. And the dead heard his voice and came out. This is exactly what happens when people are born again. Dead people with no capability of hearing are brought to life by the living and enduring word of God. They are given life. They are given both capacity and ability and life to receive and to believe in the Lord Jesus. Anyway, the peop these people who are crying out, they are aware of all of these things. They have seen, you know, the, the invalid who had been by the pool for 40 years. They've seen his healing. They've seen a man born blind healing. They have seen water. I, I'm not sure if these folks had seen the water turn onto wine. That was a private miracle. But Jesus has fully demonstrated that he has every right to be calling himself the Son of God. And he has not tried to hide any of this. Anyway, their cries for blood. Their crucifixion of Jesus, their crucifixion of the Son of God, is a great sin. And yet, as we read earlier in the book of Acts, it is whatever, this was what his hand and his plan had intended to take place. So God used the sinful hearts of man who were going to do what they wanted to do to bring about the crucifixion, the death of his own son, to cry out for his blood. All so that Christ could be glorified, so that he could be, so that he could fulfill all of his Father's will, be crucified and give his life as a ransom for sinners, be raised from the dead, and then through that death, through that burial, resurrection, through the new life, or through the life the indestructible life of the Son of God that he could grant pardon and forgiveness to the very people who nailed him to the cross. You've heard the old spiritual, were you there, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble. Were you there? That's a rhetorical question. You were there. You weren't there in the flesh in your body. But you were there represented in the Jews, in the Romans, in Herod, in all who conspired against the Lord Jesus because that is where your heart is as a son of Adam. In Adam all die. In Adam in our, in our human nature, we resist God, we hate God. There is none righteous, no, not one. So they cried out for his blood. They wanted simply to be rid of this menace to their idea of their kingdom. That's what they wanted. This man can't be our Messiah. 
our Messiah would never come around, come along and turn over the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. He would never come along and call them hypocrites. He would never come along and say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of God. That's not the Messiah we want. But they missed the whole point that Jesus was presenting in himself the sacrifice, the forgiveness of sins that would give them life. Well, when Pilate hears this, there is, there is a cause for fear. Pilate is a pagan. He believes in a pantheon of gods. And as a Roman and as a pagan, he was superstitious. He believed that the gods did traffic with people. He believed that the gods did have sons. You can read up on it in, in Roman mythology. Sons are sort of, and some of them were even sort of half God, half man, and they would come down and they would act on behalf of gods on the earth. So even in his paganism, even in his superstition, Pilate's thinking, what if it's true? What if, and in his mind is probably saying, what if this man is really a son of the gods or a son of God? One of these mythical um, demigods. What if he is one of them and I sentence him to crucifixion? I'm going to be in trouble. Now, he may also have been fearful for another reason, aside from his own superstition. He might have been fearful uh, simply because the Jews are getting more and more um, intense in their threats. And he's basically seeing that he's going to have no choice but to crucify this man in order to keep the peace. And whatever misgivings in his, are in his heart, even though he sees him as no threat, even though, though he knows he will be actually violating the judicial code of Rome by crucifying him, he sees himself as having to do this. And perhaps even in a morally bereft person like Pilate, there is enough of the image of God, in other words, enough of the, uh, the residual um, goodness of being created in God's image that he can't see the justice of crucifying an innocent man. In any case, there's a cause for fear. I find it interesting that there's more fear in this superstitious pagan than there are in these religious leaders, one of them who's the high priest. You find that sometimes in the world? I found this out teaching in a Christian school. Many Christian children raised in Christian homes, you teach them the word of God, you try to proclaim to them the gospel, and there is, there is a benign indifference or even a hostility. We know all that. We don't want to hear that. I did there, been there, done that, prayed the prayer, so let's move on. I found that children raised in ungodly and even homes that were hostile toward 
the gospel. Some of those kids actually had more concern for their souls than for these inoculated children from Christian homes. So Pilate, the pagan, he's fearful. Now he's probably fearful, as I said, for his own neck. He will not be fearful in the sense that he is worried about offending a holy God. That kind of fear is the fear that we still hold as Christians. We do not want to go against a holy God. And the Holy Spirit is grieved when we do that. He lets us know it. And the Lord disciplines his sons. Hands up if you've experienced the Lord's discipline. Was it, was it pleasant? God is holy. Well, Pilate has a cause for fear, probably just because he wants to save his own bacon, but he has, he's fearful. Now we get to this collision of kingdoms in verse 9. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? Now Jesus has said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's from above. So perhaps he's referring to that. Perhaps he's wanting to find out exactly where he's from so he can pass him off to another jurisdiction. But he says, where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. You see, Jesus sees this as a kingdom's question. And the kingdom question has already been dealt with in the previous chapter. And Pilate has not received it. Pilate has put up the blinders when it comes to anything about understanding about this other kingdom that is not of this world. It's like his eyes have glazed over. It's going over his head. He doesn't want anything to do with it. And Jesus knows that. He knows that any answer I give him is just going to confuse him more. This man's heart is not open. Jesus, as the Son of God, would have known whether this man was indeed in the truth, was indeed one of those the Father had given to the Son. None of us, by the way, none of us can put ourselves in the, in the position of Jesus when we're preaching the gospel and make assumptions about whether a person is in the truth or not, whether, whether that person is, going, is called by God. We preach the gospel to everyone. And Jesus even modeled us that to us by preaching, by giving that invitation to Pilate to hear him, to hear his voice. So, Jesus says, and where are you from? Or Pilate says, where are you from? Jesus doesn't answer. So Pilate says to him, now we get into some kingdom stuff. You will, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? So Jesus, uh, Pilate is saying, I represent Caesar. I have the power of the capital sentence in my hands. I don't have to give you to these Jews to crucify you. I can release you. They've asked for Barabbas. I can still release you. What do you have to say for yourself? So Pilate is showing, he, he, is, he is saying, I'm, I've got the kingdom behind me. I've got the kingdom of this world behind me. Um, who is the ruler of the kingdom? Who, who, who is the, the one who claims to own the kingdoms of this world? The one who claims to be their 
ruler? Well, in fact, it's Jesus. But Satan claims to have all the kingdoms of the world. He tempted Jesus with them. Remember that? All these kingdoms, all the kingdoms of the world, I will give you if you just bow down and worship me. So Pilate, he's claiming authority. He says, I can release you. Now look what happens here. Pilate is the judge. He's representing the, the king, the crown. He says, I can release you. Jesus says to him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it's given to you from above. He doesn't mean from Caesar. God is the one who has granted and who has actually ordained that Jesus be crucified and be sentenced to crucifixion under Pilate. And, and Jesus, as a person who is on trial, is placing himself and showing himself to be who he is, the ultimate judge. And he's saying, you wouldn't have any authority to do anything unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you is, has a greater sin. So there is the obvious authority of the kingdom of Jesus. There is the authority of this earthly kingdom of Pilate. There's one other kingdom in this section here. He who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Now your mind might immediately say, well, that's Judas. But in this case, it's not. It was Caiaphas, who was the high priest, who delivered him over. Caiaphas was the head of state, as it were, of what, what was then Judea. Okay? representing God's people, God's, or the, uh, the, the Judaic kingdom. Now, notice that he doesn't say, Pilate, you're without guilt. He says, the person who, gave, brought, who delivered you to me, the high priest of the Jews, he has more guilt than you because he delivered me to you. There's another reason. Caiaphas had far more light than this world, yet far more truth. Caiaphas had, had received every report of what Jesus was doing. Caiaphas had access to the whole of the scriptures. Caiaphas would have spent his lifetime learning the scriptures which testify about Jesus. And yet it is Caiaphas who is giving him over to be crucified. So there is this, there is a, the pretentious kingdom of, of Judea, there is a kingdom of Pilate, and both of them, Jesus shows himself here to, here to be in authority over all of them. He is the one, he is the one who will actually pronounce judgment in, in, in his deity. He will pronounce judgment on them. So this is a collision of kingdoms. Now, in verse 12, we see uh, an interesting phenomenon. Pilate had just proclaimed his authority. I can let you go. But we, now we have a crowd in control. Mob rule. Perhaps this is another kind of kingdom. I don't know. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the, group, the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. 
Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. This is manipulation at its finest. Pilate would have saw it as a great, uh, a great responsibility to defend his title as a friend of Caesar. Now, he may or may not have been an actual friend of Caesar, but this is what a, an official in the Roman government, every one of them would aspire to that. Um, as I mentioned, Pilate was mentored under a, under a, great, uh, a great leader, and his name starts with an S. I said it was Seneca last time. I'm wrong about that, and I can't remember it now. But anyway, that man had died, so even the aura of his great mentor was gone. And so Pilate had something to prove. He wanted to show himself above all to be a friend of Caesar, to be in the right circle. He wanted to be able to drop names and says, yeah, my friend Caesar, he wanted to be that guy. And then they throw on this, everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So there is a veiled threat here. You don't give us what we want. We are going to bring you the news. Or you're going to bring Caesar the news. That you let a guy go who claimed to be king and was a threat to his kingdom. And he's an enemy. He's made himself an enemy of Caesar. And you didn't do anything about it. They're using their political um, maneuvering here. So when Pilate heard these words... He brought Jesus out and sat down at the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha, which just means a knoll or a hill. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. Um, I should just make a note here that they have already eaten the Passover proper, and the day of preparation of, of the Passover probably means that within the Passover week, within this seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread, that there was yet to come the Sabbath at the end of the Passover, which would be the, the, uh, the Jewish, the, the ordinary Sabbath, six days of the, work, of the week shall you labor and do your rest, the set, or do your work in the seventh day shall be a Sabbath, holy to the Lord. So this was a preparation for that so they had to get all their dirty work done before, before um, what was it, the, before midnight on, on the Friday night. So all, that, all of that had to be taken care of. And, and John throws this thing here, I think, just to show that this, is, this was a, an official legal proceeding that happened at a certain time. And so John gives us that detail. And again, the irony that they have to get their murder out of the way so that they can celebrate their Sabbath. It was the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. Pilate's not letting that go. That's the charge they brought. And if they want to, if they want to, uh, if they want, if they brought the charge of his kingship, they are going He's going to keep throwing that back in their faces. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Now Pilate is powerless against this crowd. Now if you think about it, Jesus says to Pilate, 
You wouldn't have any authority if it were not given to you from above. Then Pilate bows to the crowd. That crowd wouldn't have had any authority if it hadn't been given to them. See, this had to happen. The kings of the earth had to take counsel and had to conspire against the Lord and his anointed one. It happened just as prophesied in Psalm 2 and just as was quoted in the prayer in Acts chapter 4. Crucify him. They were going to get their way. But God was going to get his way. And what men intended for evil, can you finish it off? God intended for good. Now, there's a confession here. Not of Jesus, but of the Jews. And they don't even realize they're confessing to it. Pilate said to him, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. They probably repeated that. And so it was part of their mob mentality to convince him. Caesar, we're loyal to you. We just brought this criminal to you on good faith. We have no king but you. We're not going to call him our king. He said he was our king, but we reject him as king. We have no king but Caesar. They are going against their own scriptures. Because scripture is replete with references to God installing his king in Zion. Scripture points to the Deliverer, to the Messiah, the great King, the greater David. They know that they have a king. They just don't receive that Jesus is a king. But they say, we have no king but Caesar. It's a sellout. And they are revealing what's in their hearts. They say they honor God. But in fact, the king of this world is the only king they have. They're committing treason against their own king. They're demanding the death of their own king. They don't realize who it is. But they have said, we have no king but Caesar. We want our own way and we're going to do whatever we can to get our own way. That is the condition of the human race. We have no king but Caesar. Whatever it takes for us to get our own way, we will do it. Finally, we have a cross for the king. So he, that is Pilate, delivered him over to them to be crucified. The end of all of this is court case of all of the shouting and all of the maneuvering and all of the manipulation we don't have it written here but again in Luke you read about Pilate actually washing his hands and saying I, have, I want nothing to do with this man amplifying his fear 
All of this culminates in the sentence that he would be delivered over to him to be crucified. And Jesus had prophesied this in Luke chapter 18. Uh, in verse 31, taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. Notice that Jesus says everything that the law and the prophets have written about Jesus, about me, has to take place. And he's thinking about things like Psalm 22 where it talks about his hands and his feet being pierced. He's talking about Isaiah chapter 56 uh, where, where he is mutilated beyond human recognition. All of these things must happen they were, he delivered them, him over to be crucified. Now, we begin our service with a call to worship from Acts chapter 4. And I want to conclude by reading Acts chapter 4. Because in the fourth chapter of Acts, we have people looking back on what is, has happened and what is about to happen. And from the other side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is giving them wisdom to see what has happened here. They're, they're giving wisdom to see the triumph of the King. So let's uh, look at John chapter 4, or Acts chapter 4, pardon me. Let's just read that again. Starting in verse 23, when they were released, that's Peter and John, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. Uh, by the way, the chief priests and elders, it's Caiaphas, Annas, and the very same people that had turned, that had first had sent Jesus on to Pilate. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and they knew this was about Jesus. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So whether it was the crown of thorns, the robe, the mocking, the false coronation, the spitting, the hitting, the, um, the feigned reverence, or the cries of crucifixion. All of these were represented and were prophesied here back in the second psalm where Peter quotes from. Verse 27, For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, 
to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, the king is in charge of all of this. It was all planned in eternity past in the heart of God that this would happen for the very purpose that his son would be lifted up to die, a sacrifice for sin, but just for the unjust. That everyone who looks to him in faith and says, truly this was the son of God, everyone who looks to him in faith and understands that his blood was shed for them, for their sin. And everyone who stands on the other side of the resurrection and says, he's raised again for my justification. Everyone who believes that truth will be saved. It was all planned by God. And now, Lord, look upon your, these threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Look who's saying this. Peter is saying this. Peter, the denier, is saying this. You see, he has found forgiveness on the other side of the cross. He has found life as the Holy Spirit has come into him and has empowered him and given him boldness. And he and the people who are with him are crying, praying now for more boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So who's your king? These people understood who their king was. They understood that imprisonment was no threat to their king. They understood that death, nothing that the Romans could do to them or the Jews, none of it was any threat to their king. They only asked him for more, more boldness. And in that prayer, they demonstrate the character of the Lord Jesus, who didn't see it is a necessity to defend himself. He knew who he was. He knew that he had the authority. He knew that it was God's sovereign plan for him to die. And you know that as Christians, when we recognize the true sovereign Lord, when we recognize the Lord's anointed one and we believe in him, and we know that he has died on our, in our place, as, as a part of the eternal plan of God, we need not fear anything. Jesus didn't fear. He became obedient unto death. And Jesus calls us to be obedient unto death. He died for us so that we could die with him. We could die to ourselves, to die to our own agenda, our own desires, our own sin. And he lives so that we can live with him and in him. We have no king but Jesus. 
all other kings. They serve a role for a certain time, for a certain season, for God's purpose. But they can't do anything unless they are granted authority to do it. Let's search our hearts. Let's examine our loyalties. Will we be like the professed people of God who, when pressed, will say we have no king but Caesar? Or will we be like the people of Acts chapter 4? Say we have no king but Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for leading us into your word. I pray that you would cause that which is true, that which is not of my flesh, to remain in our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would grant discernment to everyone who heard this, where there are things that have been misspoken or where your word has been twisted in any way, that you would give discernment and even give boldness that I could be challenged in some of those ways. We acknowledge your word is true. We acknowledge your son Jesus as our king. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. We're dismissed now for supper.